peace be with you. I still do that. So. Um, my name is Drew, and I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn Heights. Uh, we're currently walking through a sermon series through the book of 1 Timothy. We titled it The Household of God. I mean, Brandon opened this series by, by saying that it's inside the household of God where our, where our gospel identity is being formed and fostered. And then in week two, we saw that the foundation of, our, of this household is grace. Um, and, and really the rest of this book builds upon that foundation of grace. Um, so today we're going to keep building. In particular, we'll be discussing one essential characteristic of God's, God's family. And that's justice and mercy or compassion. Today's passage specifically commands us to care for widows. And so we, we will do that as a church. We will do that. Um, but as, as we'll see, modern American widowhood doesn't look all that much like these ancient patriarchal societies, widowhood, um, back then. Um, so we will be um, taking the principles that we find within this passage and applying them across the board to poverty and helplessness and exploitation um, in all of its forms. So um, before we get started, let me read you a few statistics. Today, an estimated 50 women will be bought and sold as slaves in Houston, Texas. Tonight, over 6,000 men, women, and children will sleep on Houston's streets. One in four urban Houston children live under the poverty line at risk of going to bed hungry on any given night. And lastly, this one gets me, but if a mere 50% of Houston's churches were to provide a home for just one child, there would be no orphans in our city. Now, I'm, I'm willing to bet that, that every person in this room um, had some sort of reaction to those statistics. Whether it's um, shock or maybe you're saddened or angered, um, those are the right reactions to have, I think. Um, but, but it's worth asking, with this knowledge, what is our responsibility? I'm, I'm confident that the vast majority of us care about these issues. But that, that wasn't my question, right? With this knowledge, what is our responsibility? And over the next 20 to 30 minutes, I, I hope we'll see that it's not enough for the church to care about these issues, that, that the church must care for human people. Let's, let's look at 1 Timothy. This entire book is predicated on the idea that the church is a family and, and we're commanded to live as such. That's why we titled this series The Household of God. But it's also why it's also why I think the Apostle Paul begins this passage the way that he does. Speaking to Timothy, who was a young pastor in a large city, he says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. So in essence, Paul is calling us to relate to one another as family. That could not be more clear from this verse, from the language that he's using. He's calling us to relate to one another as family. But I, I want us to catch something. The younger person in, in these verses is called to esteem the older person. 
And the older person in these verses is called to elevate the younger person. So even as the, even as the younger church member kneels in humility, the older church member calls them to stand as equals. This is mutual humility in action. It's beautiful. It makes for a beautiful family. And as I'm sure you've noticed, our church is overwhelmingly young. You can tell by just looking around. In fact, some of you are here. Some of you joined Sojourn for that very reason. But, but you need to know that, that we, your, your pastors, your staff, we are actively praying um, for more and more older men and women to come in and covenant with this community. So please pray with us in that. Pray with us in that. Um, and in the meantime, consider this. There are already a handful of seasoned men and women in our midst who have humbly agreed to covenant together um, with a relatively young church led by a team of relatively young pastors. And these men and women, if, if you know them, you know exactly who I'm talking about, but these men and women are an incredible blessing to our church. They do verses 1 through 2 very well. And before you leave this place, I, I would encourage you to express your gratitude to them. Um, send them a message. If they're not here, take them to lunch if they are here. Um, but don't let them leave this place without telling them thank you um, because it's a great act of humility that they are here with us. Um, the rest of this passage begins and ends with the phrase truly widows. Verse 3 calls us to honor true widows. Verse 16 calls us to care for true widows. And as we'll see, it's no accident that Paul transitions into this topic by calling us to relate to one another as family. But why do widows get two full paragraphs within this this short letter? It amounts to one-sixth of the entire letter. So why do widows get one-sixth of this entire letter? And here's why, I think. It's because this issue reveals God's compassionate heart toward the poor and powerless. This issue reveals God's compassionate heart toward the poor and powerless. And listen, if you're a widow, um, whether you're a a young widow, an old widow, um, this passage is about God's heart for you. And if you're currently caring for the elderly, if your grandparents or parents are dependent upon you, Verse 4 says, your work is pleasing in the sight of God. God's heart is for the poor and powerless. We were poor and powerless when he saved us, and that reality should create a culture here at Sojourn where thoughtful and sacrificial care is the norm. We see God's heart for the helpless all throughout Scripture. So, So let me give you three examples. Psalm 146 says, God executes justice for the oppressed, gives food to the hungry, sets the prisoners free, opens the eyes of the blind, lifts up those who are bowed down, loves the righteous, watches over the sojourners, and upholds the widow and the fatherless, the orphan. The Old Testament book of Deuteronomy tells us that God executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. And then the New Testament, book of James, says pure, uh, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, to, 
to visit them in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. See, in the age and culture to which 1 Timothy was written, um, the loss of a husband was a social and economic tragedy. In ancient patriarchal societies, the death of one's husband brought all sorts of hardship, um, including marginalization and extreme poverty. So widows were, in this system, natural targets for exploitation. And this hardship was, was compounded when the widow was left with no adult children to care for her. And that's why, that's why in verse 4, Paul instructs the children and grandchildren of vulnerable elderly women to show godliness to their own household and to make some return. So young people, here we find a clear biblical expectation to care for the aging members of our biological families. This is pleasing in the sight of God. But more than that, verse 8 reveals that to neglect one's relatives is to deny the faith. It says, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That is, that is some pretty strong language, right? How could Paul speak, speak so harshly um, toward church members who neglect to care for their family? And again, I think this is rooted in Paul's emphasis on family. Because when we neglect to care for our households, we deny the faith, says Paul. We deny the gospel, which reveals to us the manner in which the triune God has cared for his household. When we neglect to provide for our households, we deny the gospel, which tells us how the triune God provided for his household. After all, you don't, you don't have to be a Christian to value justice and mercy, right? In fact, if you're a non-Christian with us this morning and you do value justice and mercy, we invite you to serve alongside us, serve with us. But if you don't mind, uh, allow me to speak directly to the church for a moment. Because the Christian gospel should produce a certain type of people. I, I think we would all agree about that, but... Far be it from the household of God, far be it from the household of God, the church of Jesus Christ, in light of the gospel we proclaim, to be less compassionate than the irreligious, false religions, or secular governments. This church will be known for our care of the poor and powerless. And to be clear, uh, the provision Paul has in mind here is no less than financial provision. The word honor due to widows in, in verse 3 is the same word for honor due to elders in verse 17. It's the same word for honor that Jesus uses in Mark chapter 7 in reference to the fifth of the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother. It goes beyond mere respect and loving relationship. It includes financial support. But for the, for the church as a spiritual family, as an institution, uh, we are family, we are also an institution. As an institution, uh, we simply cannot afford to, to offer financial support in an unorganized, disorganized, uh, or arbitrary manner. 
in general, these two paragraphs are about, um, well, they're calling us to be thoughtful. Um, they're, they're calling us to be thoughtful with our limited resources, to be intentional with them. It's why Paul repeatedly uses the phrase, true widows. So who are the true widows, according to Paul, according to Scripture? Well, we find the answer in verses 5, 9, and 10. Now, let, me, let me compile these for you. But A true widow has been left all alone. She has no biological family to care for her. Nonetheless, she has set her hope on God. And she prays night and day. She is aged. She was a faithful wife to her late husband. She is seasoned in ministry, having brought up children, shown hospitality, served the church with humility, demonstrated compassion, and devoted herself to every good work. That seems like a pretty high bar, right? Pretty high bar to receive support from the church. Well, I want, to pull, I want to pull three applications from Paul's definition here. Three applications. Number one, the church's finances are to be distributed liberally, yet thoughtfully and responsibly having established genuine need. Number two, it's not unreasonable to expect some show of godliness and service to the church from from the people who are receiving support from the church. In other words, the, the local church is not to subsidize inactivity. Whether you're a, whether you're a church staff member, which, which I am, so this is for me, whether you're a church staff member or you're just in need of some help, um, the church's resources are not to be a source of personal gain. So it's not unreasonable to expect some show of godliness and service to the church. And number three, lastly, this is Paul's definition of a true widow. This is how Christian men and, men and women are, are to spend their golden years. Allow me to linger on this point for a bit, but do you all know what a Winnebago is? Okay, just making sure. It's, it's a motorhome in case you don't. Um, retirement is not time to buy a Winnebago and disappear forever. Now, you can buy a Winnebago. There is nothing inherently sinful about buying a Winnebago, um, just, to, just to make that clear. But, but do know that this is the time to invest your wisdom and experience back into the church so that, so that younger church members, when they reach your age, will be wiser than you are now. So, so older church members play an integral part in building up the church in love. And there's no ceiling for this type of investment. There's no limit to what the Spirit of God can do through a truly humble people. So when it's your turn, redefine retirement for our culture. Get this new and biblical vision for your golden years. Demonstrate for the church what it is to spend your life for a worthy cause and then go home to your Savior with a smile on your face. Again, I'm, I'm so incredibly grateful for the men and women in our church currently doing this well. 
Uh, I, I look forward to spending my retirement the way they are spending theirs. All right, so, so we've seen Paul's emphasis on the church's family. We've surveyed God's compassionate heart toward the poor and powerless throughout Scripture. We've heard the call to provide for our biological relatives. And we've drawn a few applications from Paul's definition of a true widow. But, but caring, for the, caring for the helpless is difficult, right? It's, it's emotionally taxing. It's expensive. It's exhausting, and it's death to self by its very nature. So we can't stop there. We cannot, we cannot just stop at the command and high-five one another and say, go get them, right? That's a bad sermon. Um, we have to draw from the well of the gospel, which is our source of strength in the midst of difficulty. We have to look to Jesus Because Jesus is our example in serving the poor and powerless, but he's also the solution to our selfishness, which prevents us from being um, the sacrificial providers we're called to be. So Jesus is our example. He's also the solution to our selfishness. I want to ask two questions. Um, The first question, what did Jesus do for the widow? And the second, who was Jesus for the widow? So if you're taking notes, There are your two questions. Question one, what did Jesus do for the widow? Not only can we trace a widow theme throughout Scripture in general, uh, we can can trace a widow theme through Jesus' public ministry in particular. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus had compassion on a weeping widow at the funeral procession of her only son. Jesus raised her son from the dead and gave him back to his mother. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus teaches us to pray by telling us a parable about a commendable widow who after much persistence was granted justice from an unrighteous judge. In Mark chapter 12, Jesus teaches us to give sacrificially by praising a poor widow who gave generously out of her poverty. And there are many more, many more stories. But this one is my favorite. This one is my favorite. In John chapter 19, as Jesus was hanging on the cross, he turned to his disciple and asked that he care for his now widowed mother, Mary. Let's read uh, verses 26 to 27 in John chapter 19. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, while hanging on the cross. Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. So, so even as Jesus hung from the cross, he commanded his followers to relate to one another as family, and he ensured that his elderly mother would be cared for in his absence. Even as he bore the weight of our sin in his nail-pierced limbs, even as he brought our salvation to fruition, he turned to his beloved disciple, effectively called him a brother, and entrusted to him his mother. Now, if anyone had reason to take a break from caring for his relatives, it was Jesus on the cross. 
Who could have faulted him for neglecting a widow under those circumstances? So just imagine Jesus hanging there. Imagine Jesus hanging there. Pain shooting through his arms and his legs, gasping for breath, and yet taking the time to turn and address his friend and his mother. Crucifixion was not distracting enough for Jesus to neglect a widow. He was being tortured to death, and yet he was not too preoccupied. So what makes us too busy? What makes us too preoccupied to care for the poor and powerless? And listen, I, I, don't, I don't say that to condemn each of us as individuals. I hope, I hope you believe me. I don't. First Timothy calls our church collectively to this task. So I'm not, calling, I'm not calling you to care for widows. I'm calling us to care for widows. That might very well mean you, um, but, but the church, the body, has many members, right? Caring for the poor and powerless, will, it will crush the individual. But it's meant to give life to the church. So, so we all share the responsibility, but in varying degrees. Um, that's okay. I, I think that's good. In fact, I think it's necessary because the church is not to be a single-issue people. Some of us need to fight human trafficking. Some of us need to foster children. Some of us need to feed the homeless. Some of us will need to fund all of this. Question number two. Who was Jesus for the widow? The book of Lamentations describes the nation of Israel as a widow. The book of Lamentations describes the nation of Israel as a widow. Listen carefully, though, to Isaiah 54. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced, for you will forget the shame of your youth. And the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he has, he has called. So why care for widows? Because when we were alone and helpless in this world, God himself, in the person of Jesus Christ, betrothed himself to us. He made himself our husband, which did away with the reproach of our widowhood. So Jesus didn't just demonstrate care for the widow throughout his ministry. He he actually became a husband to the widow. Care for the widow is at the core of the gospel of grace. So when we care for widows, therefore, we follow Jesus' example. But more than that, we demonstrate gospel truth. We adopt because we've been adopted. We feed the hungry because we've been fed. We free the captive because we've been freed. And we care for the widow because the reproach of our widowhood has been taken away. The Bible, the Bible talks a lot about justice and mercy. Um, but as, as we're about to sing, um, 
justice and mercy meet on the cross precisely because justice and mercy are fundamental to the character of God. So when the Old Testament speaks about justice and mercy, when the New Testament speaks about justice and mercy, we cannot, we cannot afford to over-spiritualize those attributes of God. We cannot simply point to the cross and say, there's your mercy. We have to act mercifully. We have to stand for justice. Because God is just and merciful, we are to be just and merciful. But we cannot call ourselves just and merciful unless we act justly and mercifully. And honestly, I, to get super practical, I, I, think, I think a lot of this comes down to budgeting. We Americans, we love to be busy. And, and busyness can certainly get in the way of thoughtful and sacrificial care. Um, but more than busyness, we love money. So for many of us, we'll need to structure justice and mercy into our calendars and into our budgets. And this applies to Sojourn as an organization as well. Um, our budget is a theological document. I love saying that. But our, our budget is a theological document, and so is your personal budget. It, it reveals what we truly believe and value. So we're starting something new here at Sojourn in light of this sermon. Um, having studied this passage, I realized that Sojourn's budget doesn't currently allow for this type of organized support. I, I take responsibility for that. Um, and, and so I put some thought into how we can pursue biblical obedience together. Beginning today, there will be, there already is, a new giving fund on the Sojourn Houston website. Um, I'll be posting a detailed explanation on uh, the Sojourn Houston blog later this week, but I'll give you the basics right now. Um, we're establishing a new benevolence fund that will share between um, the Heights, Montrose, and Galleria. And we're inviting you to contribute to that fund by fasting one day a week. I'll be fasting breakfast and lunch on, on Tuesdays, the day of my parish gathering, breaking my fast with my family that evening. Um, you can choose whatever day is most convenient for you. Then, on the day of your fast, set up a recurring donation um, to the Benevolence Fund for the amount that you would have spent on food that day. Does that make sense? If that sounds confusing, blog post will clarify it, I, I hope. Um, but think about it. Think about it. If we had 100 sojourners giving $10 a week refraining from two meals a week and giving $10 to this fund. That's $52,000 a year. Think about the individuals and the organizations we could bless with that sort of money. Plus, we're together engaging in an oft-neglected spiritual discipline. Um, this, this is God's stated, stated purpose for collective fasting. Um, let me read from Isaiah 58. Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house, when you see the naked to cover him, 
and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn. So be on the lookout for that blog post this week. Um, And Sojourn, let's do this well. Um, Not just the widows, but, but everyone and everywhere. Let's do this well. And remember, Jesus is your example. He is also the solution to your selfishness, which prevents you from being the compassionate provider you're called to be. So by the power of the Holy Spirit, be just and merciful as God is just and merciful. Let's pray.